So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin, here with your friend of mine, David Hampton. I'm looking at you on screen. It's been a while since uh, you and I got to sit across the table from each other in Franklin, Tennessee, since yeah. I went off to the wilds of Mount Pleasant. Is it my <laughs> imagination? Your face is looking thinner. <laughs> I take up less real estate on the on the screen now, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, what's going on, dude? Well, you know, I am uh, implementing uh, a, a very intentional uh, self-care plan. And I uh-huh. started it, you know, of all times, uh, about, uh, 10 days before Thanksgiving. And, um, I went to a professional person and said, I am trying to do this on my own. And I obviously lack, uh, something. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and with a lot of help and real instruction and intentionality, uh, I've lost about 33 pounds so far. And, Holy uh, smokes. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank man. you. I feel better than I have in years and I've got more to go. You know, I've kind of got a goal mm-hmm. in my mind and, and I'm trying not to be obsessive about it because you know, we can be, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all or nothing, but you know, it's, I feel great. I, uh, I don't feel deprived. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this because I, I want to, and not because it's happening to me and what okay. is me I have to, you know, do without, um, I've not had a deprivation mentality about it and I'm getting up every morning early and, uh, which is not my favorite thing. Uh, mm-hmm. but I'm being really intentional about just getting up early. I lay my workout clothes out the night before I jump in for you. those things before I have a chance to even tell myself how I don't really feel like doing it this morning. And uh-huh. I go downstairs to our gym and, um, I work out for uh, about 45 minutes to an hour, uh, a lot of uh, cardio at first, uh-huh. you know? okay. uh, and then incorporated the last couple of months, uh, weights back into the routine and everything. But but the point in it all really, Nate, is that I, um, I, I was so frustrated with myself and I knew that I, I lacked the... Um, the understanding, um, not just the, you know, the motivation, cause I, I, I felt motivated. I wanted to be, you know, thin, yeah. but it's sort of yeah. like, you know, I, I wanted to be sober too. I just hated the not drinking part, <laughs> 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 you know? Yeah. So, uh, so, and that's kind of where I was with food. You know, I had gotten yeah. to the point where, you know, I really want to lose this and I really want to do this. I want to be healthy. I don't want to have to go back to AFib hell and surgery and yeah. all that stuff that they warned me about. And, um, but for the life of me, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And, um, and so anyway, I, I got some good help and I got some good motivation and I have a plan structure, uh, and connection and activity. And, um, and I, and I'm finding that that's spilling over into a bunch of areas in my life that, I'm, I'm just getting more done because I approach things differently. Uh, yeah. From a mindset, everything isn't mm-hmm. um, super overwhelming. Um, and uh, my uh, propensity to feel a little uh, depressed in the morning and things mm-hmm. like that, uh, anxious, uh, has certainly diminished a lot. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm not, you know, on, on medicine for depression or anything, thankfully now. But, um, but it's been a, it's just been a huge uh, it's been a huge shift for me because I've dug clothes out from the back of the closet because I got a closet that ranges from, <laughs> you know, uh, all things, all things great and small, you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. As a matter of fact, I do. And, uh, some of the, some of the smaller, uh, sizes are starting to, uh, make their way to the front again. And, uh, um, yeah. 
And so anyway, I'm, I'm, I appreciate you saying that I'm feeling good. And, um, it just, it's, it's been a very, very, uh, necessary thing. So, well, now you're inspiring me. I, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I do, I, I've got different size clothes. Um, uh, I'm at this point, 20 pounds above my low and 25 pounds below my high. Okay. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you what's kicking off my anxiety. I'm going to start in a week uh, doing a video version of something I recorded some years ago called uh, Walking Lessons. It'll be oh, changed man. and amplified. It'll talk about instruction for people getting started in recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And But it's going to be video. Yeah. I'm I going know. to be on freaking camera. Yeah. And yeah. the camera, the camera, as they say, adds 10 pounds, does it not? It does. So we're told. It doesn't, yeah. doesn't lie. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I can't lose 10 pounds in a week. I'm starting in a week. But the, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm thinking, I, I have gotten lax and sloppy in my dietary choices. I have not planned. I've just, yeah, planning's a big part of it, yeah. getting some outside help. And I, I assume you're not living on kale. No, and that's the really good thing. I keep a, a food log of what I eat. Uh, yep. You know, technology, uh, my Fitbit app will um, mm-hmm. recognize most, you know, things that I have. Um, and like I said, I um, by eating the right things, um, I, I eat a fair amount of volume, you know. Uh-huh. Um, it's just that it's not, uh, you know, it's not two bowls of, you know, bluebell, Rocky yeah. Road or something, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's it's lean, it's health based, it's uh, good vegetable, fruit, protein, low fat. You know, nice. get the right fats, all that stuff. But it counts it for you, and you can kind of see where you, um, uh, where your, uh, where your propensity has been, both time of day that yeah. you eat and all that stuff. I won't get into all the details, but but the reality is, is that what it's helped me most with is portion control. Like, okay. oh, that's a portion. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So wow. a, a, a scoop of potatoes really shouldn't take up half of the plate, uh, come to find out. <laughs> well, I love hearing the cascade effect. It, and it, I've experienced it so many times myself. When I make intentional progress in recovery in one part of my life, I see it spill over into other areas and I see, yeah, greater success, greater serenity. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thanks for that jocular kick in the ass. (laughs) Uh, Well, well, thank you. Thank you for noticing my somewhat, uh, just a slightly narrower uh, face. uh... (laughs) Hey, we got a guest this week who has a little bit of experience in recovery and mm-hmm. helping people in early recovery. Yeah. She probably can talk to us a little bit about, you know, sane planning and mindfulness, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, listeners, I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation when we come back with Dr. Laura Petracek in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Our guest this week coming to us from, oh, oh, out someplace on the West Coast, someplace in California, is uh, Dr. Laura Petracek. She's the author of the Anger Workbook for Women, and more recently, the DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction, Skills and Strategies for Emotional Regulation, Recovery, and Relapse Prevention. All themes of tremendous interest for those of us in recovery. Uh, she's up early to join us uh, for this conversation. Welcome, Dr. Laura. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Yeah, <laughs> it's great to have you. Yes. Thanks, so uh, we love for our listeners to get to know our guests uh, on a personal level for as revealing as the guest would like to be. Uh, we're always curious, how did you find yourself in this field? Did you wake up one morning and thought that this would be a good thing to do? Or was there a more roundabout route that got you to where you are? Well, I usually say this field chose me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, why I say that is I uh, am recovering alcoholic and addict. Mm-hmm. I um, started using in high school, grew up in an alcoholic family. Uh, my addiction process went from zero to a hundred in four years. Mm. Wow. Um, I, when I was 17, at that point, I really hit an emotional bottom already. And um, the only way I saw out was to try to commit suicide. I took a couple of hundred sleeping pills. Yikes. I was, uh, I coded in the, was flatlined in the hospital, dead on arrival. Mm. I was in a coma for a week. And when I woke up, uh, Nathan and David, I was like, oh, no, not this again, because uh, mm-hmm. I had no tools. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to live. I don't have the tools. And um, this was in Minneapolis, Minnesota, very progressive, you know, the birthplace of Hazleton and many mm-hmm. treatment centers and the recovery field uh, in the late 70s. Yeah. And um, so I went, they sent me to an adolescent psych unit, and I did what was called what they called chemical dependency uh, history. And then they invited a woman from AA to come talk with me. And uh, she said, you know, I don't think you're crazy, but I do think you're an alcoholic. And I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it, but Uh I knew I didn't want to go home. I knew I needed some kind of help, you Uh know? And he goes, look, if, if you don't like being clean and sober, you could, just try it for a year. You could always have your misery refunded. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's what I decided to do. And it was a little tricky in the sense of my parents were not on board with it. Mm. Oh, so really? She, yeah. Well, I think partly because it would, uh, there might reveal their own drinking issues. Yeah. And oh, yeah. also, um, I mean, to not, to, to, Somewhat to their credit, uh, at that time, um, it was either alcoholism or heroin addiction. So uh, the rehabs for people my age were mainly for young people, and they were a little shady, uh, yeah. uh, not in the best neighborhoods. And But anyway, the woman from AA helped me go through the emancipation process, and, um, and then I signed myself in rehab at age 17. Wow. wow. Yeah. And then my parents eventually came on board uh, about a month later. Mm. So, yeah. And then from there, was it uh, just smooth sailing and everything went great and (laughs) you lived happily ever after? (laughs) No. (laughs) As with most of us in recovery, that's when the real... (laughs) It's when it hits uh, the the fan, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So... um, uh, I was in rehab for seven months. It was the best seven months of my life. Mm-hmm. I, I learned what it was like to be in a family. It was just the best experience. And I never really wanted to leave. Oh, yeah. I, I would have been happy staying there forever, truth will be told. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but probably going into the other side, being a counselor. But when I moved out uh, with several other people, we it's like a sober living environment they call today. But one by one, each of my uh, friends and roommates and sober brothers and sisters uh, started drinking again mm. and using, and then I followed suit. Mm-hmm. I just thought I'm too, I can't be alcoholic at 17. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, but also looking back, my struggle was also accepting my sexual identity or orientation. I had realized in treatment that I was gay and, you know, at that time, forget it. Uh, there was all this shame mm-hmm. And so I rarely discussed it except with my counselor in one-on-one. Mm-hmm. And um, so for that year, I just experiment, you know, just tried to make myself straight. It, it just did not go well. Mm-hmm. But at age 19, I knew what I needed to do. I needed to go back to the rooms. And things were going pretty well until my third year of sobriety, I hit a worse bottom than when I was 17. And what happened was I started, uh, you know, waking up early every morning. I was sobbing. I would call my sponsor. I don't know what's happening. I tell my therapist I'm scared. Mm -hmm. And then at 
one point at three in the morning, I called my sponsor and she took me to a rehab. I wasn't using, but I wanted to be in a safe place and, or she wanted me in a safe place. And they did a bunch of psychological tests and found out that I had um, manic depression or what today is called bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And that was worse than being uh, hitting bottom at age 17, if you mm-hmm. can even imagine that. Because people in my groups, their their trajectory was upward. And as soon as I got clean and sober, my trajectory was downward. Yeah. Yeah. And I could not understand it. I'd go to more meetings. I'd do another step. And it wasn't really about recovery so much as it was about my mental health and specifically bipolar disorder. So, mm-hmm. um, and then I didn't want to take uh, lithium because I thought that would mean I'm not sober. Oh. At that time, my family had moved back to California. So my women's group came to family group and they said, look, the doctor said it's okay to get outside Mm -hmm. help and um, and you will be considered sober, Mm -hmm. you know, although it was a pretty um, there was a lot of negative uh, attitude towards medication. Mm -hmm. And so I I decided, okay, I'm going to take it because I don't want to lose my this new Mm -hmm. family. Mm-hmm. And like a few weeks later, I was like, oh, my God, is this what it's like to feel, quote, normal? Mm. Yeah. And I've been just struggling in hell all these years. Mm-hmm. And so uh, really made a difference. Wow. Well, God. And then I started going in. Uh, oh, no, sorry. no, no. Go ahead. I started a chemical dependency training program when I was about a year sober. And then I. Drug, uh, school became my drug of choice, and I just kept going to school forever and ever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but maybe with a with fewer uh, negative consequences, I hope maybe. Um, but uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm listening to you, Dr. Laura, and you are a um, you're checking a lot of boxes for people that might be um, uh, pre, I guess, predisposed to uh, some type of mm-hmm. substance use disorder in that you, uh, we know, uh, what is it, nearly 50% or something uh, have co-occurring mental health issues. And um, you came at it from a place where you were trying um, for something about yourself not to be true, something you weren't accepting or admitting. And so then you, you know, you have those pieces and then coming from a home where uh, alcohol was also an issue for your family and, um so I, man, congratulations and uh, well done. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I celebrated 46 years. Oh, wow. That's um, awesome. My sobriety date is September 7th, 1974. Wow. Or 76, rather, 76. Yeah. Wow, that's wow, awesome. fantastic. Yeah. Well, so you got into mental health um, with, with school and education and all of that. Um, and then has your focus always been um, around substance use issues uh, with clients and the people that you're working with? That's been a big focus of my practice, David. Yeah. I worked in adolescent units. And then after I graduated college, I was recruited from this treatment center in New York. I became director at all of age 22. Mm. And um, that was... Uh, that was challenging because everyone else was older. Uh-huh. All my uh-huh. staff. Um, and then I worked at uh, a couple of other rehabs and I decided in my mid twenties, I wanted to take the next step. And I realized I would need a master's degree. Um, I wanted to have a practice working with families and kids. Mm. And so I got my master's degree at Yeshiva University in New York City mm. and um, started working in a high school, setting up substance use groups and um, doing counseling. And then from there, setting up my practice. Uh, and then in Seattle, I moved from New York to Seattle to start an adult children of alcoholic center and also codependency and recovery and did that for as executive director for five years. And then mm. I wanted to go the next step and get my PhD. And that's when I ended up in California. And, oh, and wow. where you, you're at Berkeley now, right? Is that, and okay. Yes, I'm in Berkeley yeah. now. Yeah. Right. And my practice now 
is a combination of people in recovery, mental illness issues, and also I'm working more with um, children and adolescents who have a combination of ADHD issues and substance use issues Mm -hmm. and behavior issues. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Uh, When did you and how did you discover uh, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT? So that's a good question. Initially, I discovered dialectical behavioral therapy as a professional. Mm -hmm. I went through training about 10 years ago and um, was very impressed with it and all the tools I learned and thought this would really be helpful for clients. Mm. Um, And then personally, uh, God, I guess it was six years ago now. So my uh, partner and I had split up, unfortunately, about, I don't know, 10 years ago. And then my only daughter left for college uh, in 2017, and I hit a really bad depression and despair, mm. and nothing was really seen was helping. And so my psychiatrist suggested this new treatment, which totally backfired, and uh, it's called transcranial magnetic stimulation. Oh, yeah. or oh, I've heard yeah. of that stuff, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um and that, and it was very irresponsible of them because someone who has bipolar, that's the last thing, mm-hmm. treatment, because it triggered a, a severe manic attack. Yeah. And I was in, uh, my daughter was in college in Virginia. I was in Virginia, you know, 3,000 miles away. I was there for her. Uh, she was on scholarship for volleyball. So I was there for a, a championship weekend or something. And, you know, my support system was three miles away, my therapist, my doctor. So it was very scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, my ex-partner was there and she helped me out. But um, so when I came back, um, I was in different groups. I was going to meetings, you know, like sometimes twice a day just for support. I took a year off work. I went on leave. Um, and my therapist suggested a DBT program. So finally an opening came up at Kaiser and I went into an intensive outpatient program and coming at it from a client rather than as a therapist is a whole different story. Mm -hmm. And um, one day the therapist said, you know, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I've heard that so many times in AA, but I don't quite get it. Like, how do you not suffer? Because I feel I suffer a lot. I don't get it. And, um, you know, they said, well, a lot of it is using these different tools. And I thought, wow, this would be such, then the idea for the book sprung up. Oh man, DBT skills would be so helpful for people in recovery. And then the pandemic happened. And I I was going to write this after I retired. And I thought, well, you don't have much to do now. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is a really great time to write this book. So that's what I did. And I, I finished the DBT program as a client and um, and then went to uh, aftercare. And yeah, it changed my life and it changed the quality of my recovery uh, immensely. Wow. So I was so impressed and that's why another reason you know i had to write this book Mm -hmm. well tell us the difference uh between uh dialectical behavioral therapy and uh cognitive behavioral therapy cbt and some of these things that might be uh more common to some people but um yeah help us understand the kind of the dynamic of that so cognitive behavioral therapy or cbt you know, is a very, it's an evidence-based therapy and very helpful. It helps a client look at their uh, negative thought patterns, their negative thoughts. I would, uh, I usually give a client a thought record um, once a week for them to, to fill up for the week and to look at, you know, where their thought distortions are happening. And um, let's do it uh, more 
honest appraisal of the situation. And in um, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT, it's a three-pronged therapy, also evidence-based. It's CBT, they use CBT, also mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But then Marsha Linehan, Dr. Linehan, discovered in her research, uh, CBT and mindfulness wasn't enough, especially at that time, DBT was primarily used for people who had borderline personality disorder, very severe um, personality disorder, and, um, you know, people living chaotic, um, dysfunctional lives. And the third piece is dialectics, which is uh, a school of thought that encompasses both and. So for most people, alcoholics and addicts, we are kind of black and white sort of thinkers. And it's all or nothing. You know, we get a flat tire. uh, We call 911 (laughs) instead of calling AAA. (laughs) (laughs) And so, but DBT um, or the dialectics help us more right size what the issues are or the situations or the feelings. Mm -hmm. And then it uses all three of those theories of therapy in one. And again, this Dr. Linehan. Um, discovered it. And then from there, uh, there's 200 worksheets, 200 skills, and just a plethora of um, help available for clients. So that's, that's the main difference. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for us one of the simpler and more useful and easy to get a handle on tools. But, uh, okay, I'm a little overwhelmed by that big number of 200. Yeah, uh, I know. It's If you get their DBT book, it's like a Bible. It's huge. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, so I need to uh, can, I need to start out very simply with a, a pocket version. Right, sure. Yeah, page one. Page one. I hear you. Um, So the first, I would say the easiest is um, mindfulness and primarily focusing on your breath. Mm -hmm. So they have you just follow your breath. So breathing in to the count of three, um, but out to the count of five, it's called paced breathing. Mm -hmm. And by breathing out two times longer, or two seconds longer, it actually slows down your heart rate and yeah. other physiological functions more so than if you're breathing in and out the same number of breaths. Um, another tool, uh, that a simple tool that's really helped me is called STOP. And um, Dr. Linehan likes to use acronyms to help clients remember the steps easier. So STOP stands for the first, so S is for stop, literally. So let's say I'm triggered by someone or something, and instead of following that thread, let's stop. Mm -hmm. And then um, literally take a step back. Because when we're upset with someone, we usually go forward, Mm -hmm. not even realizing it. And by leaning in, though, a lot of times it's leaning, we're going towards aggression. Mm -hmm. and um, escalating the situation. But by physically, by learning this skill, we were to stand up and step back. And you could just feel in your body how you're letting go in a sense. And then the T stands for temperature. And so to bring your temperature down. And they recommend when I was through training as a professional, getting... um, a bowl of cold water with ice and dunk in your face. <laughs> I'll tell you, if that doesn't bring down your temperature and whatever you were upset with is out the window, uh-huh. <laughs> but that's not always available, but you know, you could go to the bathroom, put cold water on your face. Uh, the young people I work with high school students, I tell them to carry ice pack in their bike backpack that when you uh, snap it, it instantly gets cold. Mm-hmm. and helps reduce their temperature. Right. And then the I is, or the O rather, is to observe. Okay, like do a body scan. What's happening with me right now? 
I feel I'm breathing, my breath is shallow, I feel my heart racing. And in the act of observing, it brings those physiological responses down. And then the P is for plan. Okay, how do I want to move forward with this? Maybe it's taking a time out. Maybe it's um, realizing this, you don't want to, it's not a good time to talk right now. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's telling the person, you know, all right, can we start over? Because, yeah. Um, so that's a stop skill. That's really helpful. You know, I had personal experience with the value of this, the, the first stage, the, the breathing thing. Uh, just a week ago, a week ago today, uh, I wound up in the emergency room. I was experiencing some symptoms oh. that were reminiscent of things Panic. I'd felt five years ago when I had a heart attack. Oh, wow. So I had some anxiety around that, of course, and uh, went to the emergency room. And much to my surprise, when they took my blood pressure, the blood pressure was high. It was, I was, and that's never been a problem with me. I have a, I'm a low huh. blood pressure. I'm a fall asleep in lectures kind of guy. Um, <laughs> And uh, it raised my anxiety even further. But I remembered this breathing thing. So there in the hospital, and again, when I got home, and I now have a blood pressure monitor, I have found that I dropped that blood pressure dramatically just by taking a few minutes to do the breathing that you described. Yeah. And it's a physiological thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's emotionally driven. So, I mean, this is, uh, I think part of our mistake is uh, my mistake. I'd like to live entirely from the neck up and I uh, lose track of the fact that, that, that my physical health has uh, direct bearing upon my mental health and vice versa. Yeah. yeah. And I can do physical things that will help my mental state. And I can do mental things that will help my physical state. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. I mean, there's been tons of research that, you know, using breathing or, or doing a breathing method lowers our blood pressure and anxiety. And doing physical activity helps our mental health. And, um, you know, having good mental health uh, enables us hopefully to do that physical activity, or at least, you know, I tell clients just go for a walk, mm-hmm. you know, the days you don't want to go to the gym or never want to go to the gym. Even that is really helpful. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, unfortunately in our society, especially in the pandemic, people got glued to their computers and mm-hmm. stress level went up the wazoo. So, yeah. um, you know, like today, I'm looking at a blue sky for the first time in oh. weeks. We've had the craziest weather, like yeah, yeah, atmospheric rivers and bomb cyclones, and it's just been crazy. But I'm thinking later, I'm going to go for a walk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, to get outside. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that will help my mental health, as it does for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, uh, Doctor Laura, were you? Um... Uh, where you use this this therapy and and people are experiencing these these tools, um, how does that uh, how does that actually help somebody uh, circumvent the opportunity to relapse? Um, you know, I mean, obviously they have to apply it. Um, what the, one of the challenges right. I I have with myself and clients and everybody else is that you know it's not what I know that changes me; it's what I apply. Um, Right. And, um, and, and where do you see people more, more prone to relapse? Like what, what are the, what are the ways that you're seeing relapse, uh, even become, uh, more, more, uh, right. likely or something? Well, I think, um, what I've seen in myself and people in the rooms and my clients is early recovery is just such a tough time mm-hmm. for most of mm-hmm. us. And, um, So some of the tools um, I'll use with people is to, I mean, of course, breathing is one, but in early recovery, connection is vital. So, you know, as AA suggests, pick up the phone. Um, DBT suggests that as well. Um, Stay close to other people in the room. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, don't, you know, 
Don't make any major decisions. Try to really simplify your life. I suggest to people to, um, you know, now they're able, uh, well, most employers give you time off mm-hmm. uh, for an illness and substance use is considered an illness. Mm-hmm. So you have that total time to focus on yourself and recovery. Um, some other tools are, let me just look. At <laughs> my, my book's right here. Yeah. But I'm going blank for a second. Um, sorry about that. Oh, uh, to work on. Um, so one activity is the alcoholic psyche versus the dry drunk syndrome. Mm-hmm. So looking at the quality of your sobriety, a lot of times in early recovery or even at different times, you know, we think we're doing well when uh, we're just at a point of putting the plug in the jug, as they mm-hmm. say. We're mm-hmm. not, you know, we're we're not drinking or using, but we're not really sober. Mm-hmm. So this is a way to help doing um, more of an inventory. And then another uh, activity is called radical acceptance skills. And a lot of times, whoops, in early recovery, we deal with that shame and guilt of all the behavior that we've done uh, that happened in our using or even in our recovery. Um, And that's going to bring us closer to a relapse. So to work on, uh, I have different self-compassion exercises, um, a way to be more gentle with yourself, to be forgiving of yourself. And then another activity is create an action plan for abstinence for today. So clients I have in uh, early recovery, you know, I have a, a sheet or else in the book actually too, but um, okay. What's your plan in the morning? You, you know, do your morning routine, uh, reading books or prayer or whatever you have meditation. And then what's your plan for the day? Because a lot of times uh, in early recovery or even later recovery, I'll hear from people, they didn't really plan on relapsing that day, Mm -hmm. but they took a left turn when something happened uh, or when something didn't happen. But when we have a plan for the day, we're less likely to go off course. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like I had a, a, a client and I didn't realize until working with clients who were um, older, you know, are my age, that going grocery shopping, I don't know if they have this in Tennessee, but they have ton, like three aisles of booze in the grocery <laughs> stores here. Yeah. And I never got, you know, bought my booze at a grocery store. I was, just, you know, a kid, a young person. That's the last place I would have gone. But, um, you know, a client said she was shopping and then just ended up in that aisle. So what's the action plan? You're going grocery shopping today. You are not going down that aisle. And I want you to break that down. Or better yet, let's go to a store that doesn't have alcohol lines, although that's hard to find out Mm -hmm. here, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, But the more you plan, you know, what do they say? You fail the plan, you plan to Mm -hmm. fail or Mm -hmm. you plan to relapse. So and a lot of people in recovery, myself included, you know, I just, ugh, I don't want to structure my day, you know, or we don't like a routine. But then I found, uh, and I find with my clients, it makes for a, a steadier recovery when we have a routine, when we have a plan for the day or for the week or the month. Um, as much as we may rebel against that, it, it really does help our recovery. And... Um, so those are some of the uh, activities I have in the first chapter of my book to help with relapse yeah. or oh, preventing yeah. relapse. Is your book, Dr. Laura, a, a book that is uh, something that you uh, would recommend? That is, is it written toward the person uh, with the relationship with alcohol that they're trying to um, address? Or is it... Uh, more written to professionals or, uh, you know, is this something that if I had a client uh, go through this workbook, can they, can they take themselves through that pretty, pretty well? Right. You know, that's a really good question, David. When I first was writing this book, I geared it toward professionals and I had 
some of my early readers, I said, you know, I probably written like 50 pages. Can I get some feedback? Mm -hmm. And they said, well, Laura, it's a little dry. <laughs> and they said, we th I think it would be great if you wove your own story throughout the book. You wove your own recovery story and your mental health story. And, you know, in my gut, I knew they were right. But I also had a lot of fear, like, oh, no, to expose myself as a professional. I mean, being in recovery isn't so much a big deal, especially if you're, you know, even if you're in uh, the field as a professional. Mm -hmm. But, you know, being a psychologist, also revealing that I have bipolar disorder, I was a lot more afraid of judgment and mm. um, uh, different attitudes. But I also knew just from in the rooms, you know, uh, one alcoholic talking to another, that's the biggest part of recovery, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm decided I'm going to write this book from the stance of one alcoholic talking to another and also one person with mental illness talking to someone else with a co-occurring occurring disorder mm -hmm. and, um, you know, helping people know they're not alone, mm -hmm. helping clients or people reduce that shame and knowing, hey, she's a psychologist. She's got years of recovery. And, you know, so if she could make it, I could make it too, like offering people mm -hmm. hope. Mm. Um, so I then just changed the whole book, like throughout that many, <laughs> one of many drafts, <laughs> I have a whole file cabinet full of drafts, but anyway, realizing this was, and, and you know, I, I'm so glad I did because this is a book you can give a client, um, mm -hmm. you know, because I have the step in the DBT school, uh, ah, tools side by side and my own story woven mm. in to say, Hey, this is how it worked for me, or this is what happened for me. And this is what I was taught, um, how it helped. Wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, I'm a little curious. I'm still stuck on the fact that your first book, which you wrote about 15 years ago, the anger workbook for women, I'm, I'm listening to you and you're such a soft spoken person. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, is there a trajectory that runs from what you learned that came out in that book and what you now share in, in your most recent book and your own story? Is, is, uh, is anger a primary issue for most of us in recovery? I think it's an issue for a lot of us in recovery. I think um, for women, like I know for myself, you know, I went from never saying boo. Mm -hmm. Like if you stepped on my toe, I would apologize. Uh, yeah. You know, I uh, went from that stance to then when I was starting in my own therapy to learn how to, you know, assertiveness skills, mm -hmm. I tended to go to the other angle and other side. And I didn't like that part of me. So how to find a middle ground. Yeah. And, um, Again, I think for women, we've been taught to, you know, subsume our anger or mm -hmm. not be direct with it um, and to therefore our communication is not clean. In other mm -hmm. words, not mm -hmm. what we're learning in AA to be direct and honest, mm -hmm. even though I didn't feel like I wasn't being honest. But so anyway, the book is. Um, both out of personal experiences, um, but it's also out of my professional experience. Yeah. Meaning I did a uh, pre-doctoral internship at a anger management and psychiatric center for men and women, but the anger management groups were only for men. And my supervisor said, you know, a lot of women are calling our clinic and saying they need help. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so I said, okay, I'll do my research on women in anger. And probably an hour later, we were on the fourth floor of the hospital. On the third floor, uh, one of the secretaries called and said, because um, we put flyers all over the hospital for this mm -hmm. group to start. She goes, Laura, I, or Dr. Podrojic, I have your first client, I think. I said, what happened? Well, she found out her boyfriend gave her an STD and she proceeded to beat him up in the 
uh, waiting room and then the guard, security guards came and got him and they brought him up to, to the fourth floor. <laughs> he brought her up and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> Here's my first client. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And then the second client, I mean, it's it's kind of funny how this all came together. I heard this woman screaming and yelling outside the hospital windows. So I went out and I guess some car kind of encroached in the sidewalk. And so she was smashing the car with her purse and screaming uh-huh. and yelling at the guy. And then the security guards came <laughs> <in> <laughs> and brought her up to the floor. Wow. But... Um, but seriously, I think, you know, the issue for women is more not getting angry, but getting angry in a um, healthy way. And for yeah. men, I found it's more for men. Anger is more about control and is more easily accessible. Like mm-hmm. they were taught socially, it's OK to be angry mm-hmm. and to be loud Um mm-hmm. So their issue with anger I found when I'm working with men in anger is, you know, how to, instead of being aggressive, how to be assertive. Mm. Where with most women, it's instead of being passive, how to be assertive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, what an engaging, enlightening, entertaining conversation this has been. Thank you so much for carving out some of your time to talk with us and with our listeners. Yeah. And thank you so much, Nathan and David, for inviting me today to your well, show. Well, you are welcome. And, and uh, Dr. Petrachik, how can people get uh, this workbook and get in touch with you if they'd like to uh, know more about you and your work, anything that you'd like to uh, share with us? And, uh, and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Okay. Um, well, you could get the DBT workbook for alcohol and drug addiction at Amazon.com, Barnes and Nobles, or any local bookstore. If they don't have it, uh, ask them to order it. Also, you could get it for free in libraries. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, even now, since I, my daughter's grown, I don't go to a library, but it's a very, um, it's a wealth of resources and, and free books. Mm-hmm. And so ask them for the book and they will order it. And then you don't have to pay anything because I know money, you know, is an issue for everyone nowadays with inflation. Um, Also, uh, hopefully I'll be doing a book reading in Nashville. So then they can come to my reading. And I was going to ask you, Nathan, and you, David, we could talk offline a little bit more about how I could uh, find a place in Nashville to do my Mm -hmm. reading. Yeah. Um, because I would love to do that. And then I'll be selling books at the reading and they could come there. Oh, I think All we right. might know just the place. <laughs> I oh, think please. we might. Yeah, Thanks. listeners, stay tuned in subsequent uh, episodes of the Positive Sobriety Podcast for an update on Dr. Petrachek's reading in Nashville. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Thank, well, thank, you, thank you so you. very much. Thank you. Listeners, yes. stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, Nate, I enjoyed that interview um, a lot. Uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. is uh, just a a very, uh, you know, I love people that have firsthand experience with the challenges that they're helping other people, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. um, explore. And, and one of the things that I, and I'm glad you brought that question in the conversation, but her book on anger, because mm-hmm. I'm finding as I work with people and even in my own life, uh, uh, anger and unaddressed anger and our relationship to anger can really be a, a, a trigger and a, and a opportunity for relapse. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, inability even to admit we're angry and all that stuff. I'm yeah. Yeah. Real intrigued. I think it would be helpful for me to read the anger for women book. Mm-hmm. I, uh, you know, she kind of made the general statement that guys, you know, have permission to be loud and all that kinds of, but that's not true of all guys. I was mm-hmm. not permission to be loud. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, good, the good mask, the good boy, image in which I was trained mm-hmm. and uh, with a heavy layer of uh, religiosity on top well, of it. Yeah, anger is a sin. Ambition towards saintliness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
kind of deprived me of that energy. Not to say that I was not angry. Mm-hmm. That's an instinctive response to a blocked goal. We all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. experience anger, mm-hmm. but I'd lost access to it. And I was not honest in my, I was not conscious of my experience of it often, and mm-hmm. nor was I honest in my expression of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, anger as a result drove a lot of my acting out. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of the men that I work with, particularly, um, anger is an empowering emotion. Mm-hmm. You know, sure, I feel yeah. I feel empowered, and and I don't feel uh, fearful or vulnerable. Uh, mm-hmm. Men are not, sure. you know, we're not socialized to really be able to say I feel fearful and vulnerable. Uh, <laughs> we're <laughs> socialized yeah. to you know go beat the shit out of whatever isn't working and um, right or or getting you know in in our face yeah. and. Um, or and something I think, attached to our body. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking that the, uh, you know, even um, just the ability to acknowledge that I'm actually feeling, you know, something other than just angry, yeah. just mad, um, mm-hmm. and of course the resentment piece that you know comes with anger yeah. is always a trigger. But yeah, I thought I thought that was a powerful piece of the, um, you know, even of the relapse uh, yeah. com- part of the conversation. But learning to be conscious of uh, what we're actually feeling, you know, that mindfulness piece so that Mm -hmm. I kind of know where I am emotionally. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing things I don't understand for reasons I can't comprehend. Mm -hmm. You know, this behavior that's driven from deep in the brain that my, my, you know, my cerebral cortex is desperately trying to catch up with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Anyway, I was intrigued. Uh, I'm... Uh, I'm going to order the book as soon as we sign off here. Yeah. I think it uh, will be helpful for me and helpful for the guys that I walk with. And there's always more to learn, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Always more to learn. There, there is. Recovery. There is, there yeah. is. And, uh, and yeah. some great people uh, taking some great approaches that maybe we mm-hmm. wouldn't have uh, known about or otherwise uh, explored. So, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess that's about it for this episode of the show. We got more coming up. The calendar's filling up again with fascinating guests. So you're going to want to stay tuned. By the way, listeners, if you found this episode helpful, you like the show, you can help us just by giving us a a rating wherever it is that you downloaded the podcast. It helps to drive us up in, in the rankings, make it more likely that other people will discover what a positive sobriety podcast has to offer. We also would love to hear from you. You can reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's it until next time. I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the positive sobriety. The positive sobriety podcast is recorded at crossroads for the nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 